Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our May 2010 issue. Let's get started. Aspirin is center stage again in recent medical news. According to the findings of a literature review published last month in the Cochrane database, a single 1,000 milligram dose of aspirin was an effective treatment of acute migraine for over half of those studied. Now, in the May issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, we feature results of a randomized controlled trial showing that aspirin added to regular antipsychotic therapy, reduces the symptoms of schizophrenia spectrum disorders. Since two-thirds of all patients with schizophrenia who are treated with current antipsychotic drugs will relapse, considerable interest has been directed to mechanisms other than those involving dopamine and serotonin receptors. The possible role of inflammation in schizophrenia is supported by a number of lines of investigation. One points to altered immune function, and another involves glutamate dysregulation. Because NSAIDs inhibit prostaglandin synthesis, these anti-inflammatory drugs may target both mechanisms. This study of aspirin in schizophrenia follows on the heels of three randomized studies of NSAIDs in schizophrenia, all using the selective COX-2 inhibitor, selecoxib. Unfortunately, COX-2 inhibitors have been associated with elevated cardiovascular risk, a risk that is already a major threat to patients with schizophrenia. Thus, Dr. Lan and fellow researchers chose aspirin for its cardioprotective effects and possibly wider range of action. During the three-month follow-up, a statistically significant decrease was seen in total positive and negative syndrome scale scores, which was the primary efficacy outcome as well as in positive PAN scores in the aspirin group compared to the placebo group. As hypothesized, treatment efficacy on total PAN scores was substantially larger in patients who had the more altered immune function. An effect on cognitive function could not be demonstrated. Despite limitations, this trial indicates that aspirin in combination with antipsychotics is a potentially useful therapy in schizophrenia. Turning to the next article. Investigations into the medically unexplained group of symptoms known as chronic fatigue syndrome have yielded few treatments. So far, only cognitive behavioral therapy and graded exercise therapy have proven effective. Now the usefulness of ondansetron in chronic fatigue is the focus of a randomized controlled trial. Ondansetron was chosen on the basis of previous findings that suggested a role for serotonin in the pathophysiology of chronic fatigue and positive results in a pilot study of granisetron, another serotonin receptor antagonist. 67 patients who had chronic fatigue syndrome but no other psychiatric morbidity received either ondansetron or placebo for 10 weeks. The primary outcome measures were fatigue severity and functional impairment. 
no significant differences were seen between drug and placebo in either outcome. In light of the previous research, the authors were surprised by their negative findings but could find no confounding factors. They conclude that their study shows no benefit of endansetron in the treatment of chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, next, in a large validation study of nearly a thousand psychiatric outpatients from the Methods to Improve Diagnostic Assessment and Services Project, the MIDAS project, Dr. Mark Zimmerman and colleagues described the high reliability, validity, and sensitivity to change of the self-administered anxiety scale called the Clinically Useful Anxiety Outcome Scale. The scale can be completed in less than two minutes and scored in less than 15 seconds and is available to clinicians for personal use without cost. Comparatively, other self-report anxiety scales are long, expensive, or complicated to score. Rather than assessing a single anxiety disorder, the clinically useful anxiety outcome scale distinguishes itself by assessing the broader construct of anxiety. As a general anxiety measure, this scale is useful in the management of patients who report symptoms of anxiety in the absence of a specific anxiety disorder, as well as useful in monitoring patients diagnosed with a specific anxiety disorder. The authors support the use of standardized scales to measure outcome as the standard of care when treating psychiatric disorders in routine clinical practice. This self-report anxiety scale is the second in a series of clinically useful scales developed by the MIDAS group. The first scale in the series was the Clinically Useful Depression Outcome Scale published in 2008. On the basis of their usability, both scales support measurement-based care. In another study, researchers found evidence for an interaction between genetics and environment. Over 400 refugees from the Rwandan genocide were assessed for lifetime exposure to traumatic events, DSM-4 post-traumatic stress disorder, and genotype of the SLC6A4 promoter polymorphism. The prevalence of post-traumatic stress disorder approached 100% when traumatic exposure reached extreme levels. However, persons homogizes for the short allele of the SLC6A4 promoter polymorphism were at high risk for developing post-traumatic stress disorder after very few traumatic events. Whether the effectiveness of the therapeutic interventions in post-traumatic stress disorder is modulated by the SLC6A4 genotype will be a focus for future research. In a four-week controlled crossover study, Dr. Timothy Willens and colleagues found that the transdermal application of methylphenidate very early in the morning has a positive effect on ADHD symptoms throughout the day and is associated with fewer behavioral difficulties in the morning before school in 6 to 12-year-old children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. For children with ADHD, many of the difficulties that take place at home occur in the morning while they are getting ready for school. The method called for parents to apply the patch to their child's hip 
between 6 and 7 a.m. and remove the patch between 3 and 4 p.m. daily. The maximal dose of 20 milligrams was lower than the FDA-approved dose of 30 milligrams. Before school functioning was assessed by a questionnaire. Improvements in listening, following direction, attention, and independence were observed in the absence of problematic adverse effects. Since before school functioning appears to be a major area of impairment related to ADHD, further research in this area will be welcomed. According to data from the National Comorbidity Survey Replication, about four times as many people will develop bipolar spectrum disorder as opposed to bipolar 1 and 2 disorders. These patients may be more likely to present to general medical settings than psychiatric settings, where they're more likely to receive antidepressants than mood stabilizers. Dr. Susan McElroy and colleagues at the University of Cincinnati studied Divalproex extended release in outpatients with hypomanic or mild manic symptoms. Sixty patients received either Divalproex extended release or placebo for eight weeks. Divalproex extended release was found to be significantly superior to placebo in reducing both hypomanic or mild manic symptoms and overall severity of illness. The rate of change over time on the Young Mania Rating Scale was the primary outcome measure. In contrast to the improvement seen in mania symptoms, the authors found no improvement in depressive or anxiety symptoms. The authors report that they found fairly good tolerability for Divalproex. However, they note that the high dropout rate of 43% in patients taking the active drug points to a high rate of treatment unacceptability for Divalproex, which has been seen in other studies as well. They note that the study has a number of limitations, but conclude it provides preliminary evidence for the efficacy of Divalproex extended release in bipolar spectrum patients. In another offering, researchers reviewed the medication profiles of outpatients who were taking at least one antipsychotic and had been treated with the same pharmacologic regimen for at least 90 days. Calculations using fixed unit of measurement determined whether the prescribed daily dose was higher than standard. Among 435 outpatients, the prevalence of persistent antipsychotic polypharmacy was 26%, and in all cases, persistent antipsychotic polypharmacy was associated with excessive dosing. The suggestion that practitioners may prescribe small doses of a second antipsychotic to treat auxiliary symptoms such as sleep or anxiety is not substantiated by these data. The excessive doses associated with antipsychotic polypharmacy raise concerns about the potential for increased adverse events and underscore the need for research to determine the actual effectiveness and safety of persistent antipsychotic polypharmacy. The next article reports a randomized trial comparing cognitive behavioral therapy alone, SSRIs alone, and the combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and SSRIs in patients with panic disorder with or without agoraphobia. Each treatment course lasted one year. Outcome was assessed at nine months, 
at treatment discontinuation added a follow-up 6 and 12 months after treatment. The one-year follow-up results with the Hamilton Anxiety Rating Scale as the primary outcome measure show that all three types of treatment, cognitive behavioral therapy, SSRI, pharmacotherapy, or both combined, are almost equally effective in treating panic disorder with or without agoraphobia. The authors also found that patients using benzodiazepines on a daily basis report lower physical health scores and less confidence in their ability to cope with future panic attacks compared to patients using benzodiazepines occasionally or not at all. The authors recommend that clinicians balance treatment efficacy against factors such as time to onset, adverse effects, cost, and patient preference when selecting a mode of therapy for panic disorder with or without agoraphobia. Few randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials have studied treatment specifically for patients with schizoaffective disorder. A recent systematic literature review found that patients with schizoaffective disorder have the highest rate of hospitalizations and a higher rate of comorbid substance abuse than patients with schizophrenia. Further, patients with schizoaffective disorder appear to be at a greater risk for suicidal behavior than patients with schizophrenia and mood disorders. Now, a six-week RCT by Dr. Canuso and colleagues explore two-dose ranges of paliperidone extended release in the treatment of subjects with SCID confirmed diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder as part of the first registration program to evaluate the efficacy and safety of an antipsychotic medication in patients with schizoaffective disorder. The inclusion criteria were designed to ensure that subjects were experiencing an acute psychotic exacerbation along with prominent affective symptomatology. Although the study itself was neither powered nor designed to assess paliperidone ER as monotherapy or as an adjunct to other medications, qualitatively similar outcomes were observed in patients who did and did not receive concomitant medications. This observation is relevant to clinical practice, where combination therapy for schizoaffective disorders is common. Further, because paliperidone ER is not extensively metabolized by the liver, it may be less likely than other antipsychotics to be associated with significant drug-drug interactions when used as an adjunct to other psychotropics. No new safety issues were identified. As would be expected, the mean prolactin and weight changes were greater with paliperidone treatment than with placebo. In summary, this study indicates that paliperidone extended release, including the higher dose regimen, is effective and well tolerated in the acute treatment of the range of psychotic and affective symptoms characteristic of schizoaffective disorder, particularly in patients with prominent positive and or manic symptoms. Next, we have a genetic association study, one of the first to examine treatment response in bipolar 1 depression to determine whether patients with this disorder have symptom improvement when using an olanzapine-fluoxetine combination or lamotrigine. Genotyping of single nucleotide polymorphisms, SNPs, was completed for 88 patients treated with olanzapine-fluoxetine combination and 85 lamotrigine-treated patients. SNPs were genotyped in a set of 19 candidate genes 
corresponding to known sites of activity for lanzapine and fluoxetine or previously associated with antidepressant or antipsychotic response. The effect of genotype on change in the Montgomery Asperg depression rating scale total score was assessed from baseline to week 7. This study identifies polymorphisms in three genes that were significantly associated with response to the olanzapine fluoxetine combination. These genes were within the dopamine D3 receptor and histamine H1 receptor genes. Five genes were significantly associated with response to lamotrigine, the SNPs. In two genes were associated with response in both treatment arms. This study shows that SNPs in specific candidate genes are associated with symptomatic improvement in bipolar depression in a treatment-specific fashion. These results suggest the importance of dopaminergic effect in the treatment of patients with bipolar 1 depression and the potential utility of genotyping in determining which pharmacologic treatments to prescribe for bipolar depression. If confirmed in larger studies, these genes may represent targets for future development of treatment or in the ability to identify patients more likely to respond to a specific treatment. A critical review of the literature on cigarette smoking and panic found that each appears to have the capacity to serve as a causal factor in the development of the other. Although the cause of this comorbidity is debated, four main explanations emerge. One is that cigarette smoking promotes panic by inducing respiratory abnormalities or by increasing potentially fear-inducing bodily sensations. Another suggests that nicotine produces physiologic effects characteristic of panic by releasing norepinephrine. A third proposes that panic disorder promotes cigarette smoking as self-medication. And a fourth suggests that a shared vulnerability promotes both conditions. Although the temporal pattern and the pathogenic mechanisms remain controversial, cigarette smoking tends to precede the onset of panic and to promote panic itself. Dr. Kosky and colleagues note that although cigarette smoking has been classified among substance abuse disorders since the 1980s, only a minority of studies referred to this formal diagnosis. Recognition of cigarette smoking as substance abuse disorder would quite likely improve cross-study comparisons in future research. On another front, Dr. Stephen Stull and colleagues evaluated the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of 25 milligram and 50 milligram daily doses of aglomelatine in a randomized controlled trial involving over 500 outpatients with moderate to severe depressive disorder. By 2020, depressive disorders are expected to be the second highest cause of morbidity in the world. The current rate of relapse and undesirable side effects associated with current treatments create a medical need for new antidepressants that have a higher response rate and improved tolerability. The recognition that circadian rhythm dysregulation is an integral feature of mood disorders has led to an interest in drugs that have chronobiotic activity as a novel approach for depression. Aglomelatine is a melatonin receptor agonist, which might help to normalize disturbed circadian rhythm and sleep disturbances.
This study confirmed that both doses of aglomelatine were safe and well-tolerated. The 25-milligram dose significantly improved depressive symptoms, whereas the 50-milligram dose provided evidence for efficacy until week six, but not at the study endpoint of eight weeks. The study offered evidence that the short-term antidepressant efficacy of aglomelatine 25 milligram a day is driven by other effects beyond the beneficial effects on sleep-related symptoms. We await data from ongoing longer trials. Like chronic fatigue syndrome, social anxiety disorder is a condition that causes significant distress and economic burden but has proven difficult to treat pharmacologically. Pregabalin and gabapentin have each shown promise in one controlled study, leading researchers to investigate other anti-epileptic drugs. The anticonvulsant levetiracetam has shown mixed results, with one open study reporting significant improvement in social anxiety symptoms. Now, Murray Stein and colleagues report findings from a randomized controlled trial of levetiracetam for social anxiety. 217 adults with generalized social anxiety disorder were randomly assigned to active drug or placebo for 12 weeks. The primary outcome was the change from baseline in the Leibowitz Social Anxiety Scale score. Although it was well tolerated, levetiracetam did not separate from placebo at any time point. At 12 weeks, the response rates were at 47% for placebo and 41% for active drug. The authors conclude that their study provides no support for the routine use of levetiracetam for social anxiety. They do note, though, that it might have potential as a treatment for other anxiety diagnoses like post-traumatic stress disorder and panic disorder, given initial positive reports in these disorders. Our early career psychiatrist section highlights exceptional work from the next generation of psychiatrists. This month's offering is by Anne Shin and Shelley Greenfield of Harvard University. They review the growing body of literature on the possible uses of topiramate in treating substance-related disorders, for which the pharmacologic options are few. Although topiramate is FDA-approved only for epilepsy and migraine, off-label use includes adjunctive treatment of bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and obesity. Its efficacy has been investigated in substance-related disorders, including alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, benzodiazepine dependence, and ecstasy abuse. Topiramate is thought to target the dopamine reward pathway, which is hypothesized to be the final common pathway in many addictive disorders. The strongest evidence emerges for using topiramate in alcohol dependence. In two trials, topiramate was superior to naltrexone. The promise of topiramate's usefulness in treating alcohol dependence will have to be balanced with a consideration of its side effects, which include parathesia and fatigue. The authors point out that although the data for other substances are limited, topiramate probably won't become a pharmacologic panacea for substance-related disorders. In fact, some studies have shown that it may actually enhance the pleasurable effects of nicotine and methamphetamine. 
Dr. Shinnan Greenfield conclude that topiramate is efficacious for alcohol dependence, but that the heterogeneity of substance-related disorders limits the broad application of the drug across different disorders. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, psychiatrist.com, to find a special commentary on maintenance of certification, continuing medical education activities, featured columns, book reviews, and letters, all from the May issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me in June for the next Publishers Podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.